You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Good evening. Welcome, everybody, to uh, tonight's panel discussion on Ukraine and Russia. I'm Scott Rathis, the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies. And we have a panel of experts tonight that are going to uh, talk about various aspects of the ongoing conflict from the Ukrainian, Russian, and international perspective. Now, uh, we're handing out index cards and pens for you to write down questions. We're going to, uh, you're going to pass them uh, down the aisles after the second speaker, after Alexander speaks, and Val or Phil will collect them and bring them up. And then after Derek speaks, uh, we're going to collect a second round of index cards, and we'll try to get through as many questions as possible uh, after we're done speaking. I'm going to try to limit everybody to 15 minutes, uh, and we're going to speak in the order in which we're sitting here. So the uh, title of tonight's panel is, Is There Any Way Out? And my short answer to that question is not in the foreseeable future. It's been now over a year since the annexation of Crimea to Russia, nine months since uh, Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 was shot down. There have been two ceasefires. The first one broke down. The second one is barely holding up. There are over 6,000 people dead and over a million people displaced in Ukraine. In military terms, the situation now looks something like a stalemate, kind of like World War I with a a more or less stable front line. Firing doesn't seem to gain either side much territory, but there's also the possibility that either side, if they chose, could escalate and uh, try to capture more territory on the other side. In the meantime, the Donbass in eastern Ukraine is in limbo, forsaken by both sides, controlled uh, by rebels rather than the Ukrainian government, uh, but Russia hasn't actually taken responsibility for the citizens living in those regions. The main reason, though, why there isn't an easy way out is that there's political equilibrium in that right now all sides are pretty bad off, but they could be even worse off if they made uh, a move either toward the trying to gain victory, or to seek a truce. And for the time being, nobody has any incentive to change their strategy. So it's hard to see how to get out of this. So to go into a little bit more depth, if we look at uh, what every side uh, wants, uh, we see why there's no obvious reason why anybody will shake things up. So we'll start with Russia, which is the most complicated actor uh, in this this complex scenario. Uh, President Putin, clearly uh, wants to stay in power, and that's probably his overriding priority right now. Uh, Also wants to avoid a revolution in Russia, and those two things are related. Putin, of course, wants to send a message to Europe and the world about uh, Russia's importance as a great power, about the end of American hegemony in the world, and he's trying to accomplish this in part by hamstringing Ukraine and making it difficult for Ukraine to join the West. Russia has not uh, overtly sent in uh, troops, although there's a lot of evidence that Russian soldiers have been involved in fighting in, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, Putin doesn't want to get uh, his soldiers bogged down in Ukraine and doesn't want to provoke an insurgency. But it's not clear what Putin's endgame is. And it's not even clear if Putin knows what his endgame is. He might, in principle, accept some kind of deal uh, that would end sanctions against Russia and would limit Ukrainian sovereignty that would, that is, would prevent uh, Ukraine from joining the European Union one day or NATO. Uh, but Putin also needs an enemy and it's politically useful for him to have ongoing conflict in order to succeed in his first priority, which as I mentioned is staying in power. So conflict is useful. In Ukraine, the government's main priority uh, is also to stay in power. This is the case with all politicians. Um, it's a democratically elected government 
that was uh, predominantly elected by people who were, um, who were pro-Maidan, who supported uh, the revolution against Yanukovych, um, generally supported by people who want to join the West and want Ukraine to become more European. So the government must serve this constituency first and foremost. The government also uh, seeks to make sure that Ukraine is economically viable, which means uh, make, uh, making agreements with the IMF and trying uh, as well as it can to implement the reforms that the IMF demands in order to receive the loans to pay off the debts that Ukraine has uh, incurred in the past few years. Uh, ideally, the government would probably like to reform the country to make it stronger and to make its economy more, more viable, but this is also politically complicated because uh, it may be politically costly to make the kinds of economic reforms that are necessary because there would be resistance, uh, in part from the people who are doing very well today, including the oligarchs, and that could threaten Ukrainian stability. So the government tends to be focused on the short term, managing its current crises, which are both military uh, in the East and uh, economic regarding its, its dealings with the IMF. The West, as a single actor, uh, also has, has certain incentives, but um, doesn't have a strong interest in, in shaking things up drastically. It's, one of its uh, priorities is to defend uh, principles of, um, of non-aggression, of territorial sovereignty, of a norm in, in Europe against the use of force. At the same time, though, uh, Europe especially wants to retain workable relations with Russia. They don't want to see a second Cold War uh, begin because there are uh, strong economic and political interests in Europe to, um, to ensure that Russia is still a viable partner on some issues. At the same time, though, neither the US nor Europe cares enough about Ukraine, arguably, to sink billions of dollars that might rescue Ukraine from its, its current and medium-term crisis, but money that might also be lost forever. So. Uh, Politicians in the U.S. and Europe really want the problem to go away. And in the U.S., politicians uh, tend to care more about Ukraine because they want to stop Russia from advancing rather than because they care about Ukraine for its own sake. Obama, in particular, uh, doesn't want to have to deal with the Ukraine crisis because his plate is already full of crises. So U.S. strategy right now exemplifies uh, the stasis, uh, the impasse, that all sides find themselves at. So you can imagine two possible ways that the US might be involved to try to break out of this impasse. One would be to supply lethal weapons to the Ukrainian government, and this is uh, a proposal that's been popular among uh, former officials, um, think tank people, analysts in DC, who have been urging the Obama administration to uh, send lethal arms to the Ukrainian government. The problem with that is that it's not likely to succeed in getting Putin to back down. It's hard to imagine a scenario in which you could twist Putin's arm and make him say uncle, and he would simply reverse course. More likely would be a counter-escalation in which Russia either indirectly or directly uh, strengthened the, uh, the Ukrainian side, whether through uh, separatists or Russian troops, and uh, increase the amount of bloodshed in eastern Ukraine. And Ukrainians themselves would, would suffer most in this scenario. Uh, if there was a counter-escalation, then there would be pressure on the US or NATO to send troops to buttress the Ukrainian side, uh, then which could escalate further and might cause a, a war between Europe and Russia, and neither side wants that. But sometimes, as you know from history, countries stumble into war even when they don't intend to do so. Uh, an alternative strategy to try to uh, end the conflict, which the US might be able uh, to initiate, would be a grand bargain with Russia, in which you could imagine the West uh, would guarantee that there was no invitation for Ukraine to ever join NATO, and pro probably the European Union, for extreme federalization, uh, giving high levels of autonomy to, um, to the eastern provinces, and an end of sanctions. And in return, Putin would agree uh, to, to call off this campaign. Strategies like this have been proposed by uh, realist diplomats like 
Henry Kissinger and Jack Matlock, a former ambassador to the Soviet Union. Uh, but this grand bargain possibility is not politically feasible. Today, there are norms against uh, high politics in which diplomats from the great powers uh, bargain over the sovereignty of smaller countries, uh, like the Congress of, of Vienna in, in 1815. Things don't really work like that anymore. Uh, the American Congress wouldn't uh, be fond of, of such an idea. Uh, and there's also a principle that uh, Ukraine, as a sovereign country, has its own rights and has a say in it. And the current Ukrainian uh, government and most of its supporters would not agree to any such thing. So uh, what's going on now appears to be that everybody's doing just enough to get by, but isn't willing to do anything to shake things up. Uh, from the American point of view, it appears as if uh, maintaining sanctions might be a long-term successful strategy because Russia is a declining power. Um, the economy is, is now um, incurring negative growth and there's no, um, it's not likely that they're going to recover in next year or in future years while they're still um, under sanctions. So everybody's kind of stuck. Ukraine can't defeat Russia, Putin can't back down, but also doesn't want to go too far. And the West wants to put, on, put some pressure on Russia, but not too much pressure because it doesn't want um, to be involved in a war. But there's a problem with this going a few years out. And that is there's no theory, at least in, in US policy circles, about how, how all of this ends. There's no strategic thinking uh, for how things will actually play out. Current U.S. policy seems to rely on hope, on a fantasy that sanctions will put enough pressure on Russians that they'll have no choice but to overthrow Putin in a democratic revolution or in a coup and a successor under this fantasy scenario would be more amenable to cooperation with the West. Uh, this is not going to happen. It's very unlikely to happen. A more likely scenario is that there's a steady state of decline uh, where you have a frozen conflict in the East, Ukraine uh, barely remains uh, solvent and makes deals with creditors so that it doesn't have an outright default, which means more long-term misery for Ukrainians. Ukraine remains uh, a kind of sick man of Europe. Uh, it's going to join the, um, uh, it's already signed the association agreement, so it will increase trade with, with Europe, although it's not going to be able to produce as much as before and nobody expects that Ukraine will join NATO in the foreseeable future. The losers from this scenario are ordinary Ukrainians, for obvious reasons, and ordinary Russians who have seen uh, their quality of life decline and who are now in a much more politically repressive country. The only possible winner from this scenario is President Putin himself, but that is only in the short run. He's made a statement about himself and about Russia, and uh, he's very popular at home. Uh, but looking a few years out into the future, it's a gamble. And if things keep up in Russia and things continue to slide downward, uh, it might end very messy for the Putin regime. And this is a problem because in Russia, messiness happens on a grand scale. If you push Putin into a corner, he might lash out. He might do something that we would consider risky, possibly even suicidal, and that could have repercussions um, that nobody, even Putin's uh, greatest enemies, would ever want to see. There's also the risk that sanctions might work too well, crippling the Russian economy or even causing a collapse and another default, like in 1998, which means the Russian economy would collapse for a third time in 25 years. Uh, and then you would have a, a nuclear-armed, aggrieved power in chaos. And uh, as bad as we think Putin might be, it's easy to imagine a scenario in which his successor is even worse. So the West has to consider the consequences of grinding Russia down uh, slowly, in addition to the possibility of escalating uh, quickly. So uh, this is uh, perhaps a depressing scenario, but that's often the case when we, we deal with these countries. Ukraine is out of the news now. People aren't talking about it that much. Policymakers in the West have a lot of things uh, to think about. They don't want to have to pay attention to this. 
but it will come back, and uh, it may come back with a vengeance. While we're doing that, I'll introduce our next speaker, Jennifer Carroll, who is a medical anthropologist who is currently preparing to defend her PhD in sociocultural anthropology, as well as a concurrent master's in public health and epidemiology at the University of Washington. She participated in and heavily documented the Maidan Revolution in Ukraine. Her writing on the Maidan Revolution has appeared in Perspectives on Europe, the Yale Journal of International Affairs, and the Seattle Times. And Jen has a postdoc for next year at Brown University after she defends her dissertation in June. All right, thank you for that warm introduction, Scott, and thank you everyone for being here. It continues to be very heartening to see how much interest continues to exist about this particular issue. Um, I'm going to be speaking today um, rather broadly about the, the conflict as it exists um, and sort of where it might be heading forward. I'm going to be speaking uh, regarding current events, but also from my own perspective and experiences as someone who has spent a lot of time in Ukraine, who still um, is uh, very much involved with what's happening in Ukraine, um, and also be sharing some of the perspectives of people that I know that are still actively involved there. So just to give you a, a quick idea about my involvement so far, as Scott mentioned, um, I was heavily involved in the Maidan protests. I was living in Kiev for about a year and a half um, and was there for the entire revolution. That actually is me right there. Um, so that's mostly how I, I spent my done is behind a camera in very tall, dirty things, getting a good angle. Um, I also am one of five administrators of a news group based on Facebook that was founded by uh, Bill Reich, a historian from Georgia College, uh, called Euromaidan News in English. We have over 5,000 subscribers, and we serve as a very large uh, news aggregator for things that are happening in Ukraine. Um, I've also been actively involved all year in raising funds for a group called Pitromai Army Ukraini, and they are operating out of Kiev to supply soldiers with uh, life-saving technologies from Kevlar helmets to socks to gauze, cell locks, things of that nature. Um, last summer, they were involved in buying a lot of helmets for people because there was a, a pretty big panic when um, conscription started and people couldn't actually just get the basic materials that they needed in time. Um, and this picture here on the bottom is actually Anna, one of the directors who... Um, goes out to the ATO zone or to the Donbass area regularly to deliver things to soldiers. Uh, so I'm happy to answer any questions about any of those activities later, but that's me. So the first thing that I wanted to show you today was this chart. This is what uh, the Ukrainian currency, the ribbon, has been doing. Uh, the ribbon has collapsed uh, since the beginning of 2014 when Yanukovych left office and Russian aggression in Ukraine formally began. Uh, this has been devastating for all the ways in which currency collapse is <laughs> devastating, but it has been especially so because so many people in Ukraine have debts, mortgages, and loans in dollars. Uh, salaries have not risen, but food prices have, rent prices have, gas prices have. Um, savings have been lost, liabilities have increased, many businesses are closing. Um, jobs have been lost, and one of the big things that many people I know in Kiev have been, been saying to me is that they suddenly no longer have the ability to travel internationally, which might seem like a bit of a luxury, but when you are in a country that has suffered a lot of economic and social isolation, the ability to get work in Germany or visit Poland is a huge force in moving the country forward that is, is sort of being lost. Um, the IMF predicted that the GDP of Ukraine, which went down 7% last year, is going to go down another 5% next year, and that unemployment, which was 7.3% in 2013, will raise to almost 12% next year, so things are looking rough. Oh, and I should mention that the, the degree to which this has gone down has been so severe that for the most part of my time in Ukraine, it's been about eight grivens to a dollar. Um, only a couple weeks ago, it was down to 30. So the change has been pretty devastating. Uh, so in response to this, the IMF has proposed a bailout package for Ukraine. The first tranche of money is going to be arriving uh, sometime in the very near future. Uh, $17.5 billion in aid has been promised, but... The thing with IMF loans is they come with a lot of strings attached, and there are a lot of austerity policies that the Ukrainian government will need to enact. And there has not been, in my view, enough or adequate discussion of what those austerity policies will actually mean. Um, it will likely mean lowering pensions. It um, already looks like it's going to look like lowering uh, health care subsidies. And then there's the question of Ukraine's massive debt and will it be paid back. Debt forgiveness is on the table, but there are many people who do not want that. Russia is one of them, as they own part of this debt. Um, also, there are many people who believe that 
for debt forgiveness is tantamount to amnesty to the people who caused that debt in the first place, which are the corrupt politicians that embezzled more than 14% of Ukraine's GDP in the last several years. We'll figure out whether or not that happens in June. So in the actual war zone, we have had two ceasefires, but they continue. Um, six, at least six Ukrainian service members were killed in the last 48 hours in fighting there. Um, but one of the interesting things is that the situation on the ground is fundamentally knowable because soldiers themselves are documenting what's happening with them. This, um, are, are, these are pictures that I took off of a single Facebook feed of someone that I follow who is from uh, the Nets region himself. So there are selfies on the war zone. There are pictures of their friends. Uh, the picture on top is of a medical training that he went to, to try to learn. There's even photos of their food. As an anthropologist, I love this, <laughs> seeing what they're eating for breakfast every day and lunch every day. Um, so soldiers are recording their experiences. One thing that we do know, both from this sort of testimony and from the testimony of people who are volunteering with soldiers and bringing them supplies, is that at the least, it seems like the government is now supplying soldiers better. So there is no longer a panic whereby brothers and sons are being conscripted, needing to be uh, to report to the war zone in 72 hours and not having enough time to locate camo, locate helmets, find the things that they need. Um, this time last year, people were panicking and just mobilizing their entire familial and social networks to try to get that to happen. Now, people are being told, go there. If you don't have what you need in supplies, call us back and we'll help you. And very few people are actually being called back. So it seems like that is actually improving. One of the things that has been uh, central to the conversation about what actually is happening on the ground is the um, a lot of discussion, a lot of uh, sort of interesting study, and a lot of hand-wringing about Ukraine's volunteer battalions. And these are battalions that some of them came out of the Euromaidan self-defense. Some of them were organized along the way. Uh, Kolomoisky has one that he's been funding on his own. These are groups of soldiers that are equipped and militarized and going to war, but are not technically part of the Ukrainian army or the Ukrainian National Guard. So they are folks who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, got some guns, got some camo, and went down to fight. Um, two of these volunteer battalions in particular have been deemed pretty problematic and have been written up um, an awful lot, especially in English language media, and that is the Azov Battalion and the Idar Battalion. Um, these two groups do contain members who are fond of neo-Nazi symbols and philosophies. They do have a number of violent members, and not a couple of them have been uh, found on record with English-language journalists saying that they are totally ready to take the fight to Kiev as soon as things settle down in Donbass. Um, however, I believe it is worth mentioning that... There are 42, I believe, if I can count correctly. Um, there's a lot of volunteer battalions, and only two have proven themselves <coughs> to be somewhat problematic. And in addition to that, the extremes are very much being represented in the media. This is something that I saw occur in Maidan quite a lot, where they would find the craziest person with the broadest shoulders and the biggest gun and interview them and use them as a characterization for everyone out in the square. And that's sort of what's happening here. They, uh, someone that I spoke to recently who goes to the AT zone, ATO zone quite a lot told me that she knows an awful lot of people that are in these battalions and they're all really normal guys. And that for the most part, people being interviewed um, who are displaying these sort of radical tendencies are really, really minorities, not the norm. She said there's crazy people in every group. Um, I'm of the opinion that it would be bizarre if we had a massive civil war and some crazy people didn't show up to see what was happening. Um, it was, however, announced uh, recently by the government that all of these battalions have now been incorporated under the authority of the Ministry of the Interior or the Ministry of Defense. Uh, Sean Guillory very aptly asked when I posted something about this, what does that mean in practice? Um, and I think we have to wait and see what that means in practice. As for life on the ground in Donbass, surreal surreal, surreal. Uh, by all accounts, everything is not good. Um, there's very little revenue, there's very little social services, just a bit of infrastructure that, that uh, still exists, buildings, pipes, things of that nature, and a bunch of guys with guns. There were elections held in the not-too-distant past to um, elect uh, local leadership, and that is where Alexander Zaharchenko came from. Um, this election was very interesting in that it was conducted at gunpoint, um, there was no registration required. Anyone could walk up and vote. And in one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen, they passed out root vegetables to voters as they showed up at the polling stations. And this is in a place where there's massive food insecurity, 
uh, huge financial distress. This, this is basically the social services that are offered in the Donetsk People's Republic. Um, there are journalists who I have spoken to who say that they have gone to the DNR. It is possible to get permission to enter into this occupied zone and, and leave, so many, many journalists have. And what I have been told is that most people on the ground are very unhappy with what's happening and, and wish that uh, all of this would end, but don't feel comfortable saying that on record. Um, they feel that they're constantly being watched. Um, they're constantly uh, under watch of people who are, are policing. There have been a lot of summary executions. Even the Human Rights Watch organization has said there have been a lot of summary executions. So um, it's a pretty scary place to be at the moment. <coughs> Another thing that is shaping what's happening in Ukraine right now is the internally displaced population or people who have left the Donetsk and Luhansk regions for elsewhere. Um, I regret that these numbers are so small. Uh, I did not have the time to make my own graphics, so I had to rely on someone else's. Um, the official numbers are that there are about 1.2 million internally displaced people in Ukraine, and that's as of April 10th. Um, other estimates put that above a, a million and a half people several months ago, and it has certainly grown since then. As many as half of these people have relocated to Russia, which is, um, above all, I think, a testament to how many familial and social ties do exist between ordinary people in these two countries. Thank you. Um, Others elsewhere in Ukraine have struggled. Um, there is a lot of discrimination being faced uh, by people who leave this region. Anthropologist Deborah Jones has written an excellent piece in Perspective on Europe, uh, sort of summarizing the discrimination they face. There's issues with registration. Um, in Ukraine, you are registered in your local region or your local precinct by your address. And if your address is in Donetsk and you are trying to find shelter in Kiev, you will have trouble voting, you will have trouble finding a landlord who will take you in, you will have trouble starting a business. And there have been some reports of a few people who are actually going back because they're unable to liquidate their hard assets. At least they have an apartment there, at least they have a place to live, and at least it's possible to earn some kind of a living. Other questions about what's happening. Who exactly are the people with the guns in Donbass? Are they separatist forces? Are they Russian forces? Um, all of the above, I think. Uh, Zakarchenko is the fellow on the left. He is the so-called leader of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic. Um, he himself is from Donetsk Oblast. He was born there. But many other leaders of this area, of this, this sort of separatist group, um, are elsewhere. One of from, from Russia and from elsewhere. One of the best examples is perhaps Igor Girkin. Uh, he goes by the name Strelkov. He was very, very active in the DNR earlier in the year. He actually spent last summer as the official defense minister of the DNR. And he has a colorful military history where he has served in Transnistria, the Bosnian War, the First and Second Chechen War, Crimea, and Donbass. So he does a lot of dirty work around Eastern Europe creating de facto states. According to the people I talk to who work in the ATO zone, Russian soldiers, regardless of what Putin has to say, are definitely there. And it's Russian soldiers who are on the front lines, who are um, doing the tactical fighting, who are doing the military maneuvers. The separatists and the separatist enthusiasts are behind them, are managing things in town. And the general sense is that that desire to separate, that separatist movement, would fall apart quickly if Ukrainian um, excuse me, if Russian soldiers weren't there sort of making it foment. Uh, there's also a growing sense among the volunteers I talk to that Russian soldiers who are in Donbass are very tired, want to go home, but they are not yet being welcomed back by their government. So a couple questions about how to move forward. The first one is, if we want to ask how to deal with Russia, which Russia are we talking about? Are we talking about the nation state that has a historical legacy with which the United States and other world powers have had relationship? Or are we talking about uh, Putin specifically? Um, there's an excellent debate that happened a few days ago um, in Toronto called the Monk Debate. It uh, pitted uh, Stephen Cohen and Vladimir Pozner against Anne Applebaum and Garry Kasparov. It is really worth your time to go back and watch the video. You will see two paradigms clashing very, very hard. Um, but one of the things that I um, want to take from that and present here is an idea that Anne Applebaum shared, which is that Russia is not a flawed Western power. It's an anti-Western power with a different, darker version of global politics. 
Um, she specifically said the people that rule Russia are not just politicians, they are owner-occupiers, and described uh, Putin's presidency as a kleptocracy that has hijacked Russia, that has hijacked its finances, hijacked its business, hijacked its media. So the question of if we want to engage with Russia or isolate Russia is more do we want to engage with Putin or isolate Putin I myself don't know exactly where I fall on that if, of, of how much we're dealing with a single person versus a country, but it's something that's very much at the center of, of what's happening and needs to be sorted out. There's also the issue of, of hybrid warfare and what that means for military control in Donetsk. So there have been two ceasefires. Uh, there is the first Minsk Protocol, which was put in place on September 5th, uh, the second Minsk Protocol uh, that was put in place on February 15th, and both of these ceasefires have failed. They failed pretty dramatically. And part of the reason why they have failed is because people fighting against the Ukrainian army in Donbass have flatly rejected those ceasefires. Uh, separatists did not control a very key city called Debaltseva when Minsk II happened and insisted that they were going to take it back even after the ceasefire, and they did. Zakharchenko himself has said that he intends to reclaim all of Donetsk Oblast and will continue fighting until that happens. Um, there have been plenty of war crimes in this area, public humiliations of prisoners of war, summary killings of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians, um, the use of unguided missiles and cluster ammunitions uh, causing multiple civilian deaths. Um, I don't think I need to remind anyone that this is a military force that shot down a civilian airliner. It's a chaotic, disorganized, over-equipped military presence so the question is, all the time that we're spending negotiating with Putin, can he actually control what's happening on the ground? Or has he actually a weasel loose in the hen house that he can't control anymore? It's something in the middle, certainly, but I'm leaning more towards the latter. The second question, though, is does he have access to some kind of off switch? Is it within Putin's capability to pull back resources, pull back military arms, pull back soldiers, and turn things off? And I guess the only answer we have available to us is we have to hope so. So this is my last slide, Scott. So in terms of possible outcomes, what are we supposed to do given all of these things going on on the ground? There has been a debate, and there is still an ongoing debate about whether or not to give lethal aid and in particular, there was a joint report by the Atlantic Council, the Brookings Institute, and the Chicago Council recently that overtly recommended that US and NATO send lethal force to Ukraine. And they gave two reasons. The first is that Moscow seeks a frozen conflict. The idea is that it's bad for everyone except maybe Putin, that it somehow benefits him. And two, and this is a direct quote from the report, Russia has broken the cardinal rule of post-war European security i.e., states must not use military force to change international borders. So what are the possible outcomes? We could continue to negotiate, and that will continue to fail, right? Because Putin, as the Atlantic Council said, is violating the first principles upon which international relations in the West have been founded. The problem is not how do we get Putin to sit down at the table and talk about this. The problem is that the rejection of this type of military force is the table and he is rejecting the basic premises of that conversation. The other options are to deal with this through force and impersonally. So one option is to attempt to militarily overpower the forces that are in the DNR. Um, I agree with Scott that that is not going to be done until American and NATO boots hit the ground. That's going to mean a lot of bodies and a lot of life lost. Okay? The second option is to make the continuation of this fabricated separatist movement too expensive for Putin to continue. But this requires much more significant and pur uh, purposeful divestment of, from Russian business and finance than any Western government seems willing to take on. There remains too much entanglement with Russian resources and with their, with their economy for this to work um, without some very significant changes in the international financial landscape. The fourth option, um, and I am again, and this time, unfortunately, again, agreeing with Scott, is, is frozen conflict, and that does seem the most likely, even if not the most ideal. Um, a protracted military presence in the east of Ukraine and a de facto state, such as those that have also been created in Transnistria, which used to be part of Moldova, South Ossetia, which used to be part of the Republic of Georgia, uh, both of which were created by Russian military forces as they manufactured separatist movements and continue to be maintained by Russian forces that are on the ground in both of those places. <coughs> My closing thought 
about these very, very hard choices that we have in front of us because none of these um, options are good, right? It's something that I was told last night as I was speaking to someone who had just um, uh, returned from the ATO zone. And I asked her, what do you want? I said, you can speak for yourself, you can speak for your colleagues, you can try to generalize the people in your community around you. What, she's in Kiev, and I said, what do folks in Kiev want? How would you like to see this settle out? And the answer I got was the last thing I was expecting from her, and that was, this war is awful, and we would be willing to accept just about any outcome to bring it to an end. Whatever that looks like, we want the fighting to stop immediately. So our final speaker is Derek Norberg. He's the president and founder of the Council on U.S.-Russia Relations and the executive director of the Russian-American Pacific Partnership, which is a bilateral forum between the U.S. and the Russian Federation. Uh, Derek has been working with uh, issues of trade and business with Russia for over 20 years. Okay, thank you, Scott. Um, and uh, I'm first off, uh, I'm as entertaining as it might be. I'm not uh, actually going to present Russia's position on Ukraine, but a lot of my presentation will uh, identify what Russia's official position is. I was in New York um, about a week ago and was with the ambassador of the Russian Federation, Sergei Kisidak, and heard him speak on it. So I'm fairly versed in, in what Russia is currently saying uh, their position to be. Um, what I will do, though, um, is uh, Let's see. What I, I'm sorry. What I will do is present a, what I hope is the context of February 2014, uh, and that I feel can um, educate us, or or at least uh, is worth considering in terms of the moves that Russia made, um, and whether we might have anticipated those moves, and whether better policy might have averted the crisis. Um, Despite Russia's intervening in Ukraine, I would argue that Russia and, and Putin are not bent on invading Europe more broadly. Um, in fact, I would argue they're not really interested in reestablishing the Soviet Union per se, and certainly not in world dominance, um, although clearly they are seeking a role in the world and, and in international affairs. Um, I would say Ukraine's rapid move west in February 2014, um, the rapidity of their move west, in fact, was reckless. Um, and in retrospect, I think the U.S. in counseling Ukraine and the new government uh, would have um, served them well in suggesting baby steps, uh, moving a little more slowly, uh, and possibly not prompting the reaction from Russia that, that, we, that we got. Um, and some context around uh, the issues of Ukraine's moving west. Um, one of them is certainly NATO. Uh, and Russia, for a long time, has expressed concerns about NATO's expansion east. Um, and uh, certainly on that slide on the left, with all of the uh, green, you can see uh, more, more recent years in that move of NATO from 12 members initially, up to 28 now, and coming right up to Russia's border in the, in the um, Baltics. And, and certainly the um, candidacy or the map of Ukraine, which is the membership application of Ukraine to NATO, uh, that was a bid that was put in in 2008, was then sh shelved by President Yanukovych. Um, these are all issues that, that, that color a rapid move of Ukraine westward that, that, uh, that, that do alarm Russia. And one of the issues, though, around uh, NATO that concerns Russia so much is the missile defense deployments of the U.S. and Europe, uh, ostensibly to defend us against the Ukrainian missile that doesn't exist, uh, delivering the nuclear warhead that they don't have. Now, we claim that, that our missile defense systems in Europe have nothing to do with Russia and are not, have, have no relevance to Russia, and Russia need not worry about them one bit. Uh, Russia, for a long time, has expressed their concerns about this. The U.S. so far has seemingly ignored them. In 2012, in, in Seoul, if you remember um, Obama talking to Medvedev on an open mic gaffe, 
relayed that you know just wait until the uh, my you know re-election and um, you know then I'll have more flexibility on missile defense. Well, that flexibility, of course, has not manifested itself, and in fact, we are moving right ahead with our missile defense even now with the agreement with Iran. Um, so another issue uh, that is a context for Ukraine, odd, odd, as, odd as this one may seem, the Eurasian Economic Union. Now this is what Russia has put forward as sort of their alternative model to uh, the EU Eurozone or other economic blocks around the world. Um, the Eurasian Economic Zone, or what used to be the Customs Union, uh, includes now, it was Russia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, now they've added in 2015 Armenia and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, if you see in this 2013 formation document, um, they clearly had Ukraine on here. Um, and this is superimposed, this is not, he is, he's not actually pointing to that with his hand, but I thought that was useful. Um, and so what happened was, uh, Ukraine has had long expressed their sort of, you know, westward, uh, or, their, you know, there had been expressions in, in prior governments of their wish to join the European Economic Zone. They had an application that was put in. Uh, President Yanukovych actually sort of shelved that and then signed an intent to join the Eurasian Union. Uh, and that proved to be a key factor, actually, in the whole Euromaidan movement uh, eruption. Um, Moscow has, has long lobbied against uh, the agreement with the EU or Eurozone and kind of sold the Eurasian Union plan path with, with Yanukovych with a $17 billion loan package that they came down and offered to Ukraine. In fact, $3 billion of that was the first tranche. And as Jennifer had mentioned, that's one of the pieces now that actually is probably needing to get rescheduled or negotiated. Russia so far has said, hell no. Um, so, um, but, but um, clearly the plan that, that, and why is this important for Ukraine and the whole issue of, of February 2014, and that's because this is actually, a, a, Putin is heavily invested in this project and was heavily invested in bringing Ukraine in. There were, there were news headlines of Ukraine saving this union. Um, so, but, that, but it really required uh, Yanukovych, or at least a pro, or let's say a Russian-friendly leader in Kiev. Um, in early 2014, uh, when Yanukovych's political future was pretty well sealed and, and clearly not going anywhere good. Russia actually interestingly supported Yanukovych sitting down with the opposition leaders on February 21st and signing an agreement uh, that called for constitutional reform as well as agreeing to a transition of presidential power with elections by the end of 2014. The reason, as best I can figure, why, Russians, why Russia supported this and actually kind of pushed Yanukovych to, to sign this thing, um, was it forestalled the transition and it bought time. Um, and presumably, with an aim toward Russia being able to maybe identify or find or influence events that would, that would still have a, a reasonably Russia-friendly leader in Kiev. Um, now, interestingly enough, they signed the agreement, the, the, and the day later, uh, the, the Maidan uprising basically uh, didn't accept that Yanukovych was going to stay in power, and he, uh, the, you know, the presidential palace and, and was, was stormed, as the residence was, and Yanukovych fled the country and was promptly removed from power. No, that's not right. Huh? No, that's not what happened. No, what happened? No. He fled. Okay, well, he fled. All right. He fled. Nobody, nobody threatened him. Okay. In any case, that's under somewhat dispute. I guess that's not how how the Russians talk. In any case, let's put it this way: within a few days, the new government is ratified and he's out. So, um, so basically, at this point, um, 
absent a, a Russia favorable president in Kiev, and you know, Russia had significantly lost influence in, in Ukraine. Um, Russia at this point had what seemed to be limited options and, and I would say no good choices. Um, the new Ukrainian government would presumably renew its association with the EU, not join the Eurasian Economic Union, and more significantly was the prospect that they would renew their NATO membership bid. Um, and so for Russia, from Russia's perspective, um, the loss of Ukraine and potentially to NATO um, and with it, Russia's Black Sea naval bases in the Crimea was pretty much unacceptable. So Russia's next move, as best I can tell, now there's some theories around whether Russia had a grand strategy and this was all long planned out back in Sochi. I, th I think it was fairly ad hoc. And my, my guess, having gone to Moscow in May and period like that, was um, that it was fairly ad hoc and orchestrated by what I believe was probably a fairly small circle of people in the Kremlin. Um, so enter the little green men. And, and what basically appeared in Crimea was armed uh, military fatigued uh, men with no markings on their uniform, and Russia denied they were theirs. And they proceeded to secure the Crimea within a couple of days. Um, I mean, frankly, the Ukrainian military was showing extreme restraint, um, but they were basically sent packing out of the Crimea. Um, and uh, the Crimean uh, parliament proceeded to uh, call for a referendum. There was a vote. Um, and uh, basically, the referendum <laughs> Initially, the, the, the parliament called for a referendum on the status of the Crimea within the Ukraine. That actually then was changed to be a vote for basically joining Russia or reinstate the Crimean uh, constitution uh, that, that, that existed. Um, in any case, uh, there certainly are questions of the legality of, of how it was called, how it was conducted. Um, the Russian Federation, the Crimean Parliament, uh, contend that it's legal under a Kosovo precedent of the UN uh, that basically declared that international law contains no prohibition against declarations of independence. Uh, suffice to say, there are certainly questions about that one. Um, however, from Russia's perspective, uh, things went swimmingly well in the Crimea, and I'm sorry, within two days after the Crimea vote, Russia then actually accepted Crimea's uh, petition to be annexed as a region of Russia and has become a, a subject region of Russia. Um, they then moved on into the Donbass, um, and again, some of the little same little green men, um, and in fact, uh, as, as mentioned, Igor um, Gherkin being one of them, it actually went from Crimea to Donbass. Um, the certain, and, I, and I intentionally included not only the picture on the, on the top right, which looks rather glorious and happy and wonderful, um, it was messy. I mean, there, there was a lot, you know, the, the sea, capturing of government buildings, uh, confronting, you, you know, Ukrainian... Um, uh, security forces, um, you know, it was not all entirely smooth, uh, but ultimately uh, there was a declaration of, of independence in the Donetsk People's Republic in April 7th, uh, and then subsequently uh, in the Luhansk um, uh, People's Republic uh, by the 27th of April. Um, now, <coughs> The war, a full-scale war, actually built kind of slowly. Again, the Ukrainian military, I think, was showing quite a bit of restraint initially, um, and certainly firing upon citizens of your own uh, country or region of your own country is, is a rather difficult thing. Um, but the, you know, the war had had really did begin to build in momentum um, and has become quite appalling. I mean, there's a lot of uh, footage that you can see on on 
I watched some of it today and got very depressed uh, watching some of the extreme shelling and fighting that has occurred. Um, it's, it's pretty horrific. Um, now, Russia acknowledges their support of the Donbas separatists. Russia provides political recognition, ex extensive aid convoys, as you see here, that are regularly traveling down from Russia into Donbas. Uh, it denies it is sending heavy equipment, arms, and soldiers, um, maintains its actions did not constitute an invasion, claims Russia is not at war with Ukraine, uh, contains that any Russian military fighting in Donbass are private volunteers, um, and in fact, there seems to be some evidence that, that uh, Russian military commanders do ask for volunteers. So technically, they have soldiers <laughs> volunteering. Um, Russia's casualties in the conflict are not reported, and that's where we talk about the number of dead. We, we really don't know the full number on that. Has the campaign succeeded for Russia? Um, I would say to a degree, but at an extreme cost. Um, you know, certainly they forestalled, uh, I mean, they, you know, compared to where they were in February, where it looked like it was all just going, um, they've complicated the Ukraine, and they've complicated certainly a uh, bid to the um, uh, to, to NATO, a potential bid to NATO, in that an open conflict or disputed territory makes that certainly problematic. Um, now, Minsk II um, is an imperfect piece, uh, but it is it is providing a certain respite in the conflict over a lot of the geographies. Um, however, the, the ceasefire clearly, as others have mentioned, is fragile. Um, and in terms of finding a way out, one of the things I would just suggest uh, as a sort of a concluding idea is that we have to address some of the underlying regions potentially that Russia chose to take the radical move that they did. Um, I think that, um, you know, leaving Russia no good option was, was, a, was a bad policy from actually the U.S. side and, and the Western side. I think that we would have been better to work more closely with Russia on moderating or mitigating what their possible steps would have been rather than really putting them in a corner where they didn't have any good choices. Um, so um, certainly we can, you know, I think I'm probably out of time. I mean, I have, I have other ideas on, on ways or considerations that we might make in terms of, of finding solutions or ways out of this. but. Um, um, I, I tend to agree with the other speakers that, that at this point it may well be that a frozen conflict is, is, is the best outcome we can get. Um, on one uh, note, just on, on, to comment on Scott's assessment, I think your assessment of Ukraine's um, prospects for their economy was actually optimistic because with Standard & Poor's C, C- rating with a negative trend for Ukraine, that's imminent default with a negative trend. <laughs> so uh, I think you know, their assessment is that they are going down. Um, now, we can restructure, but um, it sounds like maybe bailout is, is more, uh, more, more the path than actually uh, just restructuring. But, um, and, that's, and that, I, I mean, I will say, last comment just on that. That's one of the concerns I have with the ceasefire. And that is, do all the parties actually agree that, that they are content to stay where we are now. Um, my concern is that, um, you know, the, the, if you look at the various parties, and particularly the, um, the Donbass players, and even Russia, um, I'm, not sure they're, I'm not sure they're playing for leaving it where it is now. I mean, Russia may even be wanting to buy time and let, let Ukraine implode and then see what opportunities arise out of that. So um, those are my concerns. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, I want to thank especially uh, Phil Lyon and Val Petrova for uh, setting everything up tonight. Uh, let's thank our panelists for a great discussion tonight. Thank you.